This episode is made possible with the support from our sponsor, Vodafone America's Foundation. Vodafone America's Foundation mobilizes partners from all sectors to empower women and girls through technology, as well as support social justice projects. I'm turning 11 years old, and my mom said to make things right by marrying Alfonso now and being his wife is your way of making things right for what you've done to the church. So she made my wedding dress and she made my wedding cake. And on a Wednesday night, they had the wedding and my mother allowed them to marry me. That's Sherry Johnson, an activist who advocates to end child marriage in the United States. I said to myself and many others that I'm the voice for the voiceless. I'm the voice for those children that are being forced into marriage, that they are not aware of what they're getting into. Many of them in early ages that they can't even get out of the relationship because now the person they marry has all of the authority over them, makes all of the decisions. They have no rights. Their rights have been taken away because they are child. This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical human rights and social justice issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action, and together, to help create a better world. Sherry grew up in Tampa, Florida, with her mother, who was a teacher, and her stepfather. They lived in a church house adjacent to the conservative Pentecostal church they belonged to. Grew up as the only child, very lonely, no one to talk to, just a person that was always by themselves trying to figure out what to do next. So it wasn't all pleasant. Didn't get the attention that I wanted. I was by myself a lot, to the point where I even talked to myself as a kid, you know, when they have these imaginary people being around, that was me, I had that. Sherry felt lonely at home, but she loved going to school. I began to attend public school and I enjoyed it. I was a student that looked forward to seeing my teacher every day. School was exciting to me. I was so excited and a happy-go-lucky little girl, I would say, that had these dreams of being whatever I could be by doing my schoolwork and doing my school lessons and enjoying school. Sherry's family was very involved in the religious community, and her aunt lived at the bishop's house. One day, when Sherry was eight, she went looking for her before school. She wanted to ask her for money to buy lunch because Sherry's mother didn't have any. When she got there, the bishop opened the door. He said my aunt was not there. And then he told me to come in, that he would give me the lunch money. And then he said, well, 
I can give you the lunch money, but I need you to come here. And then he asked me to come on into the bedroom. And I eventually, after pausing for a minute, not knowing where to go, what to do, I went into the bedroom and he asked me to lie down. And as I lied down, I felt something. And he used petroleum jelly and began to penetrate, which was very painful. I hollered and he asked me not to holler so loud. And so I tried to tone it down, but I was in so much pain. And I don't know how long it lasts, but it seemed like it was forever that he finally got up and uh, he told me I can go. He had the money laying on the dresser and I got the money for me to have lunch of the dresser. While I left there with blood running down my legs, didn't know to go to the bathroom to clean up because I was too young, didn't understand. I just began to cry as I got to the back door and I knew my mother wasn't home, so I couldn't get in the house. So I went on to school and I cried my way to school. My teachers would ask me, am I okay? And I said, yes, even though within I knew I wasn't, but I didn't know how to explain what had took place and what it had just happened to me. I was just so hurt and so devastated. I didn't know how to communicate with anybody other than the tears and me feeling what I felt within, which was a lot of pain. About a week later, Sherry decided to tell her mother. As I finally got the nerve to tell my mother, my mother was not an easy person to talk with. And for sure, what I had already made the assumption that would happen did happen, that my mother would scorn me. And she scorned me to the place that she made me feel bad for what happened. She said it did not happen. She said her bishop would not do that. And so I'm trying to put it in my mind that I'm imagining something that didn't happen. And she would throw things out to me that, why would you go around lying on the bishop? Because she was one of the head leaders for the women's day at the church. She got to the place where she was even said that my daughter's going around lying on the bishop. So that made me feel bad. And now I'm trying to think, how can I retract all of this back? What can I say or what can I do to retract this because it only made it worse for me. But I had nothing to come back with. So I had to deal with whatever she said. And it just went on from there to other people reacting that your mother says you lying on the bishop. And why would you do that? You know, I was questioning things. So, I thought, well, wow, the world of me, why would I do that? So I began to believe what my mother said. It did not happen. That was just a strange imagination of mine that I had. It didn't happen. Sadly, after the first rape, her stepfather also started abusing her. Sherry thinks that they took advantage of her because they knew her mother wouldn't believe her. 
My mom would go to the laundromat on a Saturday morning and she would leave me in bed asleep. And when I wake up, I will wake up with him over me. It happened the first time and I remember the second time I told my mom that I wanted to go to the laundromat with her. Please don't leave me. And she left me anyway and it happened again. And that happened, I think I was about eight and a half, not quite nine years old. And then the deacon began to berate me because he was the one that had the key to this church because he was the deacon. So he was able to come in and out whenever he pleased. And he would come in at night after everybody was gone to bed. And that's when he would rape me. Several months after Sherry was last raped by the deacon, her school noticed a change in her body. She was asked to go to the school clinic where she was examined. Sherry was then told that she had to call her mother to come and get her. And I say, why? And they say, because you're sick. I say, I'm not sick. Well, I didn't know they were saying I was pregnant. But I found out after my mother came that I was seven months pregnant. She came and got me. And she said, who's been messing with you? I said, Mom, I've been telling you all the time what's been going on. And you tell me it wasn't true. So it kept happening. She said, well, I don't understand. How could that happen? I said, well, it happened. And that's why I was telling you it was going on. And I didn't say a whole lot because I knew how my mother was. She was a very angry type person. And I didn't want her to reach back and slap me. So I was nine when I found out I was pregnant. And my experience was horrible. I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know what was going to happen. My mother got in the car and she said, well, you're fixing to have a baby. I said, have a baby. And then I remember my mind going, how do you have a baby? And I was just trying to figure out what do you do to have a baby? My mom never explained to me how you give birth and what happens after that. I never knew that. So my mind just wondered, where's this baby now? How am I going to have a baby? Where is this baby going to come from? So that puzzled me for a long period of time until I gave birth because no one ever told me until I actually gave birth. Sherry knew that the father of her child was the deacon because he was the last one who had molested her. She was suspended from school and was sent to the deacon's house in Miami. She stayed there until she had her first daughter. Now I've given birth at 10. Now I'm turning 11 years old. And my mom say to make things right for what you have done, this is how you need to make it right. And that's Mary. His name was Alfonso. By Mary Alfonso. Now, and being his wife, is your way of making things right for what you've done to the church. Because you've made the church look bad, now you're going to make something good come out of something bad. So you're going to marry, you're going to get married. And that's what I did. I never talked back to my mother. Never. So whatever she says that I have to do, I just did it hoping for the best. In 1971, Sherry's mother tried to get a marriage license in Tampa, but the judge refused. 
Instead, she went to Pinellas County where she found someone who would do it. She then made Sherry's wedding dress and baked a wedding cake. At age 11 and already a mother, Sherry married the deacon, who was 20 at the time. Like Sherry, at least 12 million underage girls are married each year. That means that more than 650 million women alive today were married as children. This is despite the fact that the Convention on the Rights of a Child, the most widely ratified human rights treaty, condemns this practice. Only three countries, including the United States, have not ratified this treaty. Among the countries that have ratified the convention, 12% have no legal minimum age for marriage. But this practice is common, even in countries where child marriage is illegal. It's happening in different places for different reasons, but it is happening all over the world. That is Princess Mabel Van Oranje, founder and global champion at Girls Not Brides. Girls Not Brides is a global network of civil society organizations from over a hundred countries committed to ending child marriage. There are places where child marriage is happening because of tradition. People do it generation after generation because that's what they've always done. And sometimes it's driven by poverty. You know, marrying a daughter off means one less mouth to feed. Or in case when there's a dowry or a bride's prize involved, sometimes you want to marry your child at an early age because it will cost you less or because you will actually receive money. Sometimes it has to do with fears around the sexuality of the girl. So the fear that she might uh, get pregnant before she's married and thereby either dishonor herself or her family. What we also see is crisis situations, whether that is natural disasters like earthquakes or floods, or whether it's man-made disasters like war, they have a big impact on child marriage as well. In Syria, before the war, 13%, 1-3% of all girls were married before the age of 18. From a global perspective, that's a relatively low percentage. However, once the problem started in Syria and you got the refugee flows going, parents felt compelled to marry their daughters off, either because they didn't have the money to, to feed all these mouths or because education wasn't available anymore or because they were afraid that the girl would be sexually abused and so child marriage seemed to be a safer option for the girls. And so in this community where child marriage rates before the war were relatively low, you saw them almost quadruple in some places. Not because parents necessarily wanted this for their girls, but because child marriage had become what seemed to be the safest option. So there's a variety of drivers, but in a way it is always the underlying reason why this happens is because of inequality. The difference between boys and girls, the fact that girls are seen as less worthy. Because gender inequality is a global issue, child marriage affects every country, not only low-income ones. Child marriage among girls is most common in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, but it is also really prevalent in countries like the United States, where over 200,000 minors were married between the years 2000 and 2015, 80% of which were married to adults. In the United States, there is no federal law that prohibits child marriage. Nobody really protected me or made me feel like I was worth anything. That's Sherry again. After she was married, the school notified social services. Someone came to her house to investigate. Sherry told them about the marriage and the different people who had raped her. But that person never came back. 
I believe the church was in on with the state because the state didn't do anything. And everybody knew I was pregnant. Not only did social services come, the doctor knew who examined me at the school. The school knew. I went to another doctor. That doctor knew. Then I gave birth in Miami at Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital. Everybody knew, but nobody, nobody protected me. Nobody came to my rescue. Alfonso continued to sexually abuse Sherry after they got married. Their church prohibited contraception, so she kept getting pregnant. Every time that she was expecting a child, her husband would disappear and leave her on her own. I'm being taught that I must take him back and forgive him in order for me to go to heaven and for God to protect me. So I'm being taught that, and I'm trying to do this with all my might because it's painful, it's agonizing. I have no one to talk to. I'm all alone. Nobody that can just nod their head and say, I understand. I didn't get any of that. So now it's just me and my children that I'm constantly having babies after babies after babies. And I have to take care of those babies. I got to look after them. I got to make sure they eat and the bottle is fixed and the diapers are clean. They didn't have pampers back then. I had to wash diapers in the tub and hang them on the line. I had to do that. I had to fix bottles in the middle of the night all alone by myself. How did it feel to be both a mother, a wife, and a child? Crazy, just like it sounds, crazy. Trying to fulfill all of those shoes that I'm wearing, and I don't understand none of them. This episode is made possible with the support from our sponsor, Vodafone America's Foundation. Vodafone America's Foundation invests into programs that create opportunities for women and girls to learn new skills, sustain their interests in technology, and allow them to thrive and excel. The organization supports advocacy and gender work for women in and through technology to elevate women's voices and create positive and sustainable change within their communities around the world. The organization also supports equality and social justice projects. To learn more about the Foundation's programs and how you can support their network of partners, please visit Vodafone-US.com. The link is in our show notes. Around 70,000 young brides die every year as a result of pregnancy or childbirth complications. Sherry was among the lucky ones who survived. At first, Sherry returned to school while her mother looked after her babies. But she had to give it up when she was in the ninth grade. By the time Sherry was 17, she had six children to take care of. My education went down the drain. For me, there was no education anymore. I had to send my children off to school. Then I found out if I didn't send them to school, I could go to jail. So it was for them. It was not for me anymore. I had to look after them and protect them. 
Girls who marry early are significantly less likely to complete their secondary school education. Every additional year that a girl stays in school increases her earning power by 10 to 15%. And women who earn a salary reinvest most of that money into their families. This means that girls dropping out of school perpetuates intergenerational poverty. But this is just one of the many consequences of child marriage. I asked Tanishta Data what the other effects of child marriage are. Tanishta is a child protection specialist at UNICEF. There is very clear linkage with early pregnancy and then all the related health hazards that come from early pregnancy. I mean, can you imagine a nine-year-old girl being pregnant? What it will do to her body in the long term is anybody's guess. Along with some other health concerns that come up are also higher maternal mortality as well as child mortality rates and also sexually transmitted diseases. Many of these cases are also happening in areas where access to reproductive health services are poor as it is. And therefore, these kind of health impacts, they really add up and they could all be happening at the same time to the same girl. A big impact is also, of course, the intimate partner violence. A lot of data, and I can speak more surely about India, our data on violence against women is very clearly telling us that the younger you are married, the more at risk you are of intimate partner violence. Because, you're, uh, you know, naturally the agency and the ability to negotiate, report, and really, you know, take a stand against this is also all severely affected. Related to that also is, of course, mental health. And while there is lesser evidence on this, it is coming up in small parts across the world of how it has an impact on mental health in the long term and carries forward as well. And finally, I think the one that really for me is, you know, is a standout is, is it results in a lot of disempowerment of girls. It is very difficult then to really have these girls come back into mainstream society, be active and work and communities and other spaces and to really find their voice to be able to speak up for themselves. What makes things worse is that in many countries, including the United States, underage girls are not legally allowed to get a divorce. But even in places where nullifying the marriage is a possibility, the process can be incredibly difficult. Take the example of India. The girls do have an option before they turn 18 to really be able to take the initiative to have the marriage nullified without even going into the whole issue around divorce and other things. But in reality, it is very difficult for girls to get that kind of support from their families who have pushed them into that marriage in the first place or to have that kind of support networks and legal representation or even understanding of what really they need to do to be able to nullify the marriage. Sherry found herself in a similar situation. When she was 17, she decided to get a divorce. But the process wasn't that easy. I was so frustrated having these children, having a father leave me every time I get pregnant. I won't forget it. I got the phone book and I started looking up attorneys. And I would call so many attorneys. I would just call them and tell them my situation back to back to back. And I finally got one attorney that said that I can come in and he would allow me a consultation. And then that consultation, he told me that he would charge $75. 
how he did it to this day, I don't even know. And I was too young to even be able to ask the right questions to find out how. But he had told me about legal aid. And so I went to legal aid. And legal aid did give me a check of $75 that he said he would charge. I took that check and I signed it over immediately to that attorney so that he can give me a divorce. At this point, I'm saying I don't care what happened. If I'm not going to be accepted by God and other people, so be it. If I'm not going to go to heaven, so be it. I'm in hell now. It's the way I feel. If I'm going to go, I'm already there. So give me a divorce. I'm out of this. Two years after Sherry got divorced, she fell into another abusive relationship. It wasn't as much abuse for as having children. I had three children in that relationship, but it was more verbal, psychological, and mental abuse that I was attracted to in that relationship that was happening to me. So I was in that relationship for 26 years. And then I got into another abusive relationship. Most victims that have been abused, that's what they resort back to, especially when they start at a very young age, because they don't know about living a decent life without being abused. And that's where I was. Child brides like Sherry are at a much higher risk of becoming victims of mental and physical violence. But that wasn't the only way in which Sherry was affected. After dealing with children and you're trying to get them raised and get them to a point in their life where they can live their life, but your life has never been lived because your life is just, it's like a, just a bystander just passing through. You're passing through with all these issues that you're trying to deal with. And so right now I deal with things like diabetes, being overweight, not trusting people. And these are still things that I fight with, you know, that I struggle with. Because even now, sometimes I feel like people just take away from me. They come to get what they can get. Can I have this? Can I have that? You know, and I've done that. I've given and I feel like I've given all my life. I have given not just to my children, but I've given my life away to survive for me to try to survive. And that's what I'm still doing. Sherry wanted to do something to help other girls and women who might be in her situation. No child coming to this world deserves to go through and deal with the issues I have dealt with in life. That's the reason I protected my children. My girls, I protected them. I was there for my children because they didn't deserve to be mistreated. So my question was, what am I going to do about it? I said to myself, you went through the things that you went through. What are you going to do to help some other child not to deal with the issues you have dealt with. 
In 2012, Sherry created a hotline to report child abuse. And the reason I did the hotline is to allow a person to talk about whatever issues they was dealing with they needed to talk about. That was the issue that I had dealt with so much going through what I went through. I had no one to talk to. I had no one that I felt that I could trust that would not scorn me like my mother did. So what I do? Talk to myself. So I started this hotline. And on this hotline, it allowed those that have been abused to just cry out, scream, just speak out what you're feeling, how you're feeling, what you felt that you have been through, how you was mistreated, just to be able to talk it out. And maybe somebody could hear me and understand what I've dealt with or what I'm dealing with. And that made me feel better to be able to express. Didn't have a person that I could talk with, but just to express it, just to get it off my chest, allow me to breathe better. A year after Sherry created the hotline, she felt like she needed to do more. She set out to try to change the law. So I go to legislators and knock on the doors. I need to talk to you. I need to let you know what's going on in this world. It's bigger than this building that you're in. It's bigger than this room that you're in. There are children out there that are being forced to marry at a very young age because of predators and they gonna do it legal. And it's not right, so I need you to help me. I've had many legislators tell me it's impossible for anybody under age 18 to get married. And I tell them that's not true. Read your laws and read those loopholes that goes along with the law. While in most states, 18 is the minimum age for children to get married, many have legal loopholes or exceptions. Sherry finally found a legislator that helped her introduce a law that would definitively ban child marriage. Their effort got traction in the Florida House in 2014, but it went nowhere in the Senate. It wasn't until 2018 that Florida finally became the first state in the United States to ban child marriage under the age of 17. In no small part, thanks to Sherry. Although Sherry wishes that they had set the age to 18, children under 17 cannot marry someone that is more than two years older. Since then, at least half of U.S. states have enacted some sort of reform to their minimum age marriage laws. But besides raising the minimum age for marriage, we must make sure that these laws are enforced. And because child marriage is driven by a variety of factors, the solutions will also look different. If you want to tackle child marriage, you really need to look at, in a particular community, why is it happening? That's Mabel again. 
Is it happening because the adults in that community think this is the right thing to do, in which case you need to try to change their social norms? Is it driven by poverty, in which case you need to see if you can help these families out of poverty? Is it because people are not aware of their rights, you need to provide them with different programs? Is it because there are no alternatives, like no education or employment opportunities? And so you need to look at different solutions for different places. Which makes it very important that you listen to the people on the ground who understand best why it is happening. This is not an issue where, you know, somebody from London or New York can stampede into a village in Africa or Latin America or South Asia saying, oh, we're going to come here to help you stop this. No, you really need to empower people in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, who understand the communities, who understand why child marriage is happening there, who understand what you need to do in order to end it. Those are the people that need to be empowered. And often that doesn't cost a lot of money and it will have a lasting effect. Sherry continues advocating to end child marriage. And she wants you to know that you have a role to play. The listeners, please do what you can. Whatever power lies in your hand to change the law, to protect the children, who we as a village are responsible for, then you are responsible to protect them. Until they get a voice, you are their voice. As Sherry notes, we all have a role in ending child marriage and solving the root causes that perpetuate it. Through our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. There are many ways to do that. Here are just a few suggestions. First, support the campaign Vow for Girls, a growing global movement that unites fashion brands and the wedding industry to end the international child marriage crisis. 100% of the funds raised go directly to local organizations providing resources to girls who are at risk of child marriage. Second, be vigilant in your communities and your families. When you believe somebody is at risk of child marriage, advocate for them and report it to local advocacy organizations who can help. Third, learn more about child marriage and how to end it. We've prepared an educational toolkit on our website to help you deep dive into this issue further. We invite you to host a teach-in for your friends, colleagues, and community. Knowledge is power, and you have the power to inspire real change. If you'd like to hear more empowering stories from Finding Humanity, or to learn more about this episode, visit our website at findinghumanitypodcast.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Your ratings and reviews help Finding Humanity reach new audiences, so we thank you for your support. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. 
For this episode, I'd like to thank Sherry Johnson, Princess Mabel von Orange, and Tanishta Data. Our co-executive producers are Camille Lorente and Hazami Bermada. Associate producers are Fernanda Oriegas and Tani Jaraprasuk. Policy and background research by Carolina Mindica and Tani Jaraprasuk. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode. <laughs>